This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. That's the sound of mourners carrying a coffin through the streets of Beirut yesterday. They were marking the death of top Hamas commander Saleh al-Aruri. The deputy leader died in an airstrike earlier this week when a suspected Israeli drone hit an apartment building in the Beirut suburbs. In response to his death, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah said the death would not go without response and without punishment. And it's that promise that has people worried the war between Israel and Hamas could spill further into Lebanon. Hussein Ibish is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Hussein, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Glad to have you back on our program. How significant is the death of this Hamas leader this week in Lebanon? For the war between Israel and Hamas, it's extremely significant. It's a major blow to Hamas, and it's the first Hamas leader outside of Gaza who has been hit in the aftermath of the October 7th. Uh, attacks led by Hamas in southern Israel. So that raises the question whether there'll be more of these people killed, and most of them are in Qatar, which has been relatively friendly to Israel, and and so that's a really open question. But Al-Aruri was a unique figure in Hamas. He was one of the founders of the Qassam Brigades, uh, which is Hamas's paramilitary, and he was the key figure linking Hamas to both Turkey, where he lived a lot, and in Lebanon to Hezbollah and Iran. And so he was really a key figure, not just for the external political leadership, which is mostly in Qatar, but also a key figure enabling and supporting the uh, paramilitary and the military wings of Hamas in Gaza. What signal do you think Israel is sending with this attack? The Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has said that Israel would operate, in his words, against Hamas leaders wherever they are. Well, it's hard to know if this signals a series of assassinations that will have to spread to Qatar very quickly. And if that's true, the Qataris are going to have to have a choice between a real crisis with the Israelis or finally being forced to change their policies towards Hamas and kind of showing the leaders the door so they can try and get refuge in Iran or or Lebanon or Syria or Algeria Mm -hmm. even, which would probably be the safest place. The other thing, the other signal that they're sending uh, is that they're willing to take the war into Lebanon and provoke Hezbollah, but they were very careful, very, very careful not to kill any Hezbollah members. The only people who got killed in that attack were Hamas people and a Lebanese Muslim Brotherhood guy. Nobody from the Shiite community and nobody from Hezbollah was killed. And the Israelis must have gone to some trouble to make sure that that was the case. Uh, So the 
strike is a mixed signal to uh, Hezbollah that they will defy them and strike uh, Hamas inside Lebanon, but they would do it in such a way as to make sure that it was not actually an attack against Hezbollah itself. And the Israelis said, whoever did this, because they don't admit doing it, even though they did do it, um, whoever did this, it was not an attack on Beirut, Lebanon, or Hezbollah. And so I think it's a mixed signal for Hezbollah. Really. But, but you see it, I mean, and again, to your point, Israel has yet to claim responsibility for this, but there have right. been these border skirmishes that have been happening between Israel Daily. and Hezbollah over the past couple of months. You see this as, as a clear escalation. Oh, without a doubt. It's a huge escalation. And, and it calls for a response because way back in August, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader, said he would not allow... Uh, it an attack on any Lebanese or Palestinian figure in Lebanon by Israel to go unpunished. And uh, so he's on record as saying he's going to retaliate. Now, he can either do that by mimicking this or further escalating, depending on how, you know, the intensity of his response, or he can do a series of attacks in the border area, which, would be, which are routine, and they've been accepted for a long time. Anything that happens within a mile of the border and with a few soldiers or fighters killed on either side is seen as acceptable and does not uh, mandate any kind of restoration of deterrence. It doesn't mean that the other side has to act in a dramatic way, because it's routine. If Nasrallah does a series of things on the border that's contained to Israel, then this may well pass without setting off a further set of cyclical tit-for-tat escalations where each side says, oh my God, I've got to restore deterrence, I've got to do something dramatic, and that's how you can get a war that nobody wants. Um, and so I think it's more likely than not that Hezbollah will take its time and be restrained because I don't think they've changed their mind about not wanting to be drawn into this conflict. Mm. And Israel left them just enough room uh, by not killing any Hezbollah person uh, in this attack or any of their relatives or anything like that um, to give them this kind of um, you know, psychological and cultural space to do that. To what about, be, what about with, within Lebanon itself? I mean, what sort of fear is there that this could escalate? The memory of the war of, of 2006 would be fresh still because that was so it devastating. Is. Yeah, it's very fresh. Uh, I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure on Nasrallah not to retaliate too much and not to escalate with Israel. The Lebanon, in the meanwhile, by the way, um, you know, Hezbollah got stronger since 2006, but the Lebanese economy has collapsed. And Lebanon is in no condition to um, absorb even a limited war between Hezbollah and Israel, let alone the all-out uh, devastation that would be likely if a war did break out. They, Lebanon cannot sustain that at all. And the, I think there's an overwhelming sentiment inside Lebanon that Hezbollah must not do this, especially because there is no Lebanese national interest that would be served. It would be a pointless disaster, only in the interest of Hezbollah's sort of regional alliances, which are, are meaningless from the Lebanese national interest point of view. And so I think there is a huge amount of pressure on Nasrallah um, to be restrained. And if there is a, a faction, which there must be, saying, no, no, go to war, come on, rise and shine, they're, they're 
pretty marginal and they're whispering rather than shouting. This is, I would say, I have to ex uh, exclude um, some of the Palestinians in Lebanon who, uh, you know, are demanding, you know, uh, full action and have been kind of pressing um, and echoing Hamas's complaints that started after the first week of the war with Israel, that its, it's um, allies, particularly Hezbollah, are not doing enough and that they should do more. But that's a that's a pretty marginal group inside Lebanon. What sort of fear is there within Israel about what would happen if if Hezbollah were to escalate things? How much damage could it, could it do inside Israel? Well, I, I think there are Israeli intelligence estimates that if Hezbollah, with its one hundred and fifty thousand plus missile arsenal with a hyper precision guidance, were to have joined the war on October 7, in other words, as Israel was reeling from the Hamas-led attack from Gaza, if Hezbollah had suddenly unleashed its arsenal, they could have sustained 100,000 dead in a couple of days. Now, that's a very big number, but it's a reflection of the power of Hezbollah's arsenal. Um, you know, it, it, there is a lot of concern. Israel has evacuated 80,000 people from uh, northern villages and towns. Uh, Kiryat Shmona, which is the, the most northern town on the Lebanese border, is, is pretty much abandoned. And I think there is a lot of concern in Israel about Hezbollah's prowess. Now, that leads a lot of Israelis to urge caution, but it also leads people like the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant to say from almost day one of the conflict with Hamas, we should launch a preemptive strike against Hezbollah in Lebanon to, to reduce its power. We should start knocking out its arsenal. Take the war to them. Don't wait for them to join. And it was really, I think, the Biden administration that decisively said, no way, no way. And I think that um, the U.S. has been the major restraining uh, power outside to tell those in Israel who want to preempt um, uh, Hezbollah and maybe even expand the war to try to bring in Iran and, and, and ultimately create uh, U.S. strikes against Iranian nuclear facilities, which is sort of the logical consequence of that cascade of disasters, mm. um, to, to say no to them. And uh, so far it hasn't happened, which is a really good thing. A really good thing indeed. Hussein, we'll yeah. leave it there. I'm glad to talk to you again. Thank you very much. Thank Anytime. Thank you so much. Hussein Ibish is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute. He was in Washington, D.C. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. There are, as Hussein said, mounting tensions across the Middle East, and that, in part, is why the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is back in the region this week. It is in no one's interest for this conflict to spread beyond Gaza. He will emphasize the responsibility of all parties to help chart a path forward for Gaza that achieves lasting security for both Israelis and Palestinians. That's U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller. Janice Stein is a professor in conflict management and the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Janice, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Matt. It feels like volatile isn't a strong enough word to describe <laughs> the situation in the Middle East right now. 
That is certainly true. And as Hussein said, the particular situation in the north can always blow, Matt. But in a way, there is a kind of language that goes back and forth, carefully targeted, carefully controlled. There's a conversation. Um, and so far, in fact, the most dangerous border has actually held. Mm. So how concerned are you uh, about the situation in Lebanon? You have to be foolish not to be concerned. And um, one thing you and uh, Hussein did not get to talk about is the presence of an American envoy in the region, Adam Hothschild, who is shuttling back and forth now because time is running out on the status quo. Um, there are 100,000 people displaced, empty villages uh, on both sides of the border. Uh, and Hezbollah has to make a really tough decision coming up. Matt, does it pull its forces back just a little bit from the border so that there's enough security for people on both sides to come back? You can imagine how hard that will be on Nasrallah under the present circumstances. But that's what the talks are about right now. That is just one of the potential flashpoints in the region. Let's talk about what's happening in the Red Sea, where Houthi rebels have been involving themselves in this Israel-Hamas war with these attacks in the Red Sea. What are they trying to, what are those rebels trying to achieve in those attacks? In some ways, they're the most interesting group outside of Hamas and Israel in this whole story because the Houthis have, in fact, uh, come out in strong solidarity with Hamas. Uh, they control northern Yemen after a bitter, bitter civil war uh, in Yemen in which they faced... Um, uh, tribal leaders who were, in fact, supported by the Saudis and the Emiratis. And that lasted for several years, Matt, and killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It was a massive humanitarian catastrophe. The Houthis triumphed, but those conversations to settle it are still going on. And this raises their profile globally. They are in a really strategic spot overlooking the Red Sea uh, and those narrow straits, Bab al-Mandab, through which 30% of the world's container shipping passes coming down from the Suez Canal. Which is why you have you know, countries like you know, and the United States, obviously very concerned. The UK has said it's considering yeah. airstrikes to protect those container ships that are making their way through or not making their way through because many of shipping companies have suspended passage through the Suez Canal. Exactly. They've gone around, they have to go around the Horn of Africa. Costs are escalating. Insurance costs, one of the biggest issues with for global shipping. And um, this is in the context, as you know, of many parts of the world struggling with inflation. Well, raised shipping costs, which is what's been happening. So the United States has organized what it calls Operation Prosperity. And Canada is a member of that coalition, and the focus is, is, is very deliberate. It is about keeping international waterways open. Mm. There's also the situation that we saw in Iran this week, a terror attack 
Islamic State claimed responsibility. This comes uh, almost four years. You and I spoke four years ago um, when the United States drone attack killed the uh, leader uh, Qasem Soleimani. Um, and this, 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 this attack was held at his grave and sort of marking his death. How could that, that attack, and again, Islamic State is claiming responsibility for this. How could that destabilize the situation even further that we're talking about in that region? So I'm going to go out on a limb here, Matt, and say this is de-escalatory rather for Iran. Uh, This was not, uh, this was not uh, an attack by Israel. It's clear to the Iranians it's not. The Islamic State, Khorasan, has now come out and claimed responsibility. It is the largest number of casualties dead and wounded in a terror attack in Iran in years. That has to be um, making Iranian leaders look over their shoulders at home. And probably the last thing they want, they haven't wanted an escalation right from the beginning, but this is likely to tamp down any incentives of that of that kind. This is a domestic Iranian problem, uh, and it's been one for years. The last region that I wanted to to, to mention in this larger uh, area of concern is what happened in Iraq, where there yeah. was a U.S. drone strike that killed a senior figure in an Iran-linked militant group. And you have Iraqi government officials and others who have reacted with outrage to this. When you see that happen, um, what does that tell you? Again, Matt, this has been an ongoing issue. That's, in a sense, the story of the Israel-Palestine struggle. It pulls in forces. It's like a huge sucking force that pulls in all the already ongoing conflicts in the region. This has been a problem uh, for for several years now where the Iraqis have actually wanted, have asked American forces to leave. Again, there's an under-the-table, over-the-table conversation. There have been repeated rounds of attack. The United States has uh, hit back several times. And in fact, this is a situation that could, in fact, get worse. There's a report in Political this morning suggesting that Biden administration officials are drawing up plans to respond to what could be a wider conflict. What does that tell you? I mean, how seriously are people taking the fact that, as you said, what's happening right now between Israel and Hamas could draw in other nations, could suck other nations into this conflict? That's the big risk. Uh, The conflict is bad enough. We have seen... Over 20,000 killed in Gaza, uh, 1,500 killed in Israel. Uh, the whole goal of diplomats since this uh, war has started is to prevent it from escalating. That's why, in fact, um, Secretary Blinken is back in the region. There's two parts to this, Matt. Prevented from escalating, but dialed down the intensity of the fighting in Gaza, move to what the administration is calling phase three in order to reduce any chance that this can spread. But how much influence does he have? He has been saying that, the U.S. has been saying that for weeks now, and Israeli forces have only escalated 
uh, well, the, 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 their attacks in Gaza. How much, if he's there trying to turn down the heat, not just in the direct conflict between Israel and Hamas, but in that wider region, how much influence does he actually have? He, you know, he does. He does. Um, we haven't paid a lot of attention again, but Israeli forces have started to withdraw. Uh, just a few days ago, they have started to withdraw. Uh, reserves are returning to Israel. That is, in fact, what the Biden administration has asked for repeatedly. And that is the commitment that a very grudging, reluctant prime minister of Israel made, that this would happen in January, and that it the commitment was never to end the war, but to change the nature of the war. And, in fact, we see um, a thinning out now of Israeli forces in northern Gaza. You're confident. So you're confident that Blinken and others will be able to, I mean, turn this heat down. It feels, whatever metaphor you want to use, whether you're on a knife edge, whether you're peering over a precipice, whether the pot is about to boil over, you're confident that he's going to be able to try to, to dial that down. Confident is a very, very strong word, Matt, that I would never use in this part of the world. Uh, but that is the direction uh, that is the full force of American policy. And Israel doesn't have a blank check from the United States. Its military leaders, rather than some of its right-wing cabinet ministers, know that all too well. Janice, we'll leave it there. Glad to talk to you, as ever. Thank you very so much. nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Janice Stein is a professor of conflict management and the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.